You're listening to audio from Pleasant Valley Community Church. For more information about Pleasant Valley, visit our website at pleasantvalley.cc. I will never forget the day that I realized the devil was real. I was a young man, and there was a woman, probably in her 50s, who was a missionary. And she was a friend of our family, very close friend. And she shared with our family a story that would make the hairs on the back of your neck stand up. And she shared the story of the day in her home when she encountered evil. She encountered the demonic. She encountered darkness. And I've never forgot that day as a young man. And then as I became older and began to follow Jesus myself, I've had multiple experiences in my life where it was unmistakably clear that I had encountered evil. That the devil or Satan isn't simply some imaginary fairy tale character in spirituality, but he is real. God says in the book of Ephesians that our, our, our war as Christians is not against flesh and blood primarily. Like our, our main enemy isn't the people on the other side of the political aisle. Our main is, enemy isn't Louisville Cardinal fans, right? Our, our main enemy isn't flesh and blood. It's the principalities and the powers of darkness. And we are in a warfare that you can't see it because it's invisible, but it's there. And if we were cognizant of the warfare that is going on around us, it would change the way we prayed. It would change the, the, the seriousness with which we read the word of God. It would change the way we think about Jesus. Remember, it struck me as a young man when I learned that that missionary had encountered evil incarnate, that if God is real, the devil must also be real. If there is good, there must be evil. If there is a kingdom of light, there must be a kingdom of darkness. We wrongly see Jesus as he is portrayed in the scriptures. If we only understand Jesus as one who came to save individual sinners from their sin. Yes, he came to do that. But Jesus came not simply to save sinners, but Jesus came to make war against the devil. When Christ came to earth, he initiated a clash of two kingdoms. The kingdom of darkness versus the kingdom of light. And this morning, as we return for week 26 in our verse-by-verse study of the book of Acts, Acts 10, Peter characterizes the ministry of Christ as a ministry of warfare. Acts chapter 10, verse 34. Remember the context is is God has just shown Peter um, through this vision of all these animals coming down out of the sky that God has said all things are now made clean. The dividing wall between ethnicities and races has been broken down. So there's not a black church. There's not a white church. There's not a Jew church, a Gentile church. There's one church unified under the blood of Jesus. So that's the context. Peter is in Cornelius' home, a, a Gentile himself. And notice what Peter says about Jesus and the gospel. Peter opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. In other words, that's why me as a Jew can be in a Gentile home because Jesus 
has broken down the barriers. But in every nation, anyone who fears Jesus and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. And look, it's this next verse, verse 38, that I want us to really focus in on today. Verse 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Jesus went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that Jesus did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put Jesus to death by hanging Jesus on a tree. But God raised Jesus on the third day and made Jesus to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with Jesus after he rose from the dead. And Jesus commanded us to go preach to the people and to testify that Jesus is the one appointed by God to be judged of the living and the dead. To Jesus all the prophets bear witness. What that means is everything we've never fully understood in the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, all these Old Testament prophets, you're like, what are they talking about? Peter says here in verse 43, everything in your Old Testament is all about getting you to Jesus. All the prophets, Isaiah, Malachi, Zechariah, Haggai, they're all telling you Jesus is coming. And then everyone who believes in Jesus, everyone, receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Now, go back to verse 38, where Peter, in many ways, summarizes the earthly ministry of Jesus before his crucifixion. Verse 38, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Jesus went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. By the devil. For God was with him. Now, Peter takes us into the, a, a Trinitarian mystery. That though Jesus himself was divine, Christ was God. Not inferior to God. He was God. Fully divine. But in Jesus' humility and in the inner workings of the Trinity, the source of Jesus' power in ministry was the Holy Spirit of God. And it was through the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus would then triumph over the devil. The Spirit of God anointed Christ for war. Jesus understood his ministry in the exact same terms. Go over to Matthew chapter 12. And you can hold your finger there because we're going to spend some time there. Acts 10.38 mirrors at, uh, Matthew chapter 12. In Matthew 12, Jesus has just healed a demon-possessed man. And when the Pharisees saw it, they accused Jesus of being demonic himself. And they said, Jesus, you're only casting out demons because you have Satan in you. Which, if you think about it, was the most ridiculous accusation in the world. So Jesus says in verse 26, let's listen to his refute. If Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? So, so Jesus re responds to the Pharisees, listen, if I'm from Satan, then why would Satan have me cast out 
his demons. Why would Satan kill his own soldiers? I mean, this would be like if you're a Kentucky football fan, Coach Mark Stoops hires a hitman to take out our best player, Lynn Bowden, really our only good player. Like, you know, if, if Coach Stoops had him taken out, our whole team would crumble. Well, what Jesus says, if I was satanic myself, why would I be casting out demons? So Jesus says in Matthew 12, I'm not satanic. Here's how I cast out that demon. Matthew 12, verse 28, next verse. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So Jesus concurs with Peter's understanding in Acts 10, 38. Go back to that verse. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with power from the Holy Spirit. Why did God do that, though? So that Jesus could go about doing good and healing all were who were oppressed by the devil. For God, through the Holy Spirit, was with Jesus. Peter and Jesus give us a little biblical theology here. So put on your seminary cap for a few minutes and let's walk through the scriptures and see there is a connection between one being anointed with the Holy Spirit of God and one being a king who will rule over his enemies. Now I want to show you this theologically. In the Old Testament... When God placed his Holy Spirit upon someone, God was setting that person aside or marking them out for kingship. Consider the example of David. Which, by the way, in 2020, Phil and led to preach through the life of David. So we're going to get a lot more Old Testament in 2020. I'm excited about that. But God gets angry in the Old Testament with King Saul. And God says, Saul, you're no longer going to be the king. Now, when Saul was king, God had anointed him with the Holy Spirit. But when God removes Saul from being king, he takes the Holy Spirit away from Saul. Now, in 1 Samuel 16, 13, a new king is being appointed, a young shepherd boy named David. And then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the midst of his brothers. And notice what happened at this anointing. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. So when God sets someone aside to be king, he anointed them with his Holy Spirit. And the idea is that only with the help and power of the Holy Spirit could that king rule and reign over Israel and defeat Israel's enemies. So David is anointed as king in 1 Samuel 16. He's anointed with the Holy Spirit. And right after that, very next chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 17, David goes to war against Goliath. With the power of the Holy Spirit upon him, King David, in the anointing of the Spirit, kills the ten-foot giant. Then, hundreds of years later, get to your New Testament, where Jesus comes from what line? From the line of David, prophesied in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Jesus is the promised king or Messiah, which by the way means anointed one, anointed with the Spirit. Jesus comes and will sit on the throne of David forever. But Jesus, just like Saul... And just like David receives the anointing of the Holy Spirit where God is setting Jesus aside as king and warrior. Notice this back in Matthew chapter 3, verse 16. Jesus is being baptized. And notice what happens. When Jesus was baptized, 
Immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to Jesus, and Jesus saw the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, descending like a dove and coming to rest on Jesus, just like he did Saul, just like he did David. And behold, a voice from heaven, which of course is the voice of the Father, first person of the Trinity. This is my beloved son, second person of the Trinity. You've got all three persons right here in two verses. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So again, the term Messiah means anointed one. So as God anoints Christ with the Holy Spirit, the Father is declaring, Jewish people, listen, I've told you all throughout the Old Testament prophets, an anointed one would come, a Messiah would come, Isaiah 61, the Spirit would rest upon him. He is here. Like a dove, the Spirit anoints Jesus, rests upon Jesus, which the Jewish people also would understand. If this Jesus has received the anointing of the Spirit, like Saul, like David, that must mean this Jesus is king. Jesus isn't just a man, God says. He's not just a religious leader or our homeboy or the ticket to your best life now. Jesus Christ is king of the world. So at his baptism, Jesus is anointed with the Holy Spirit. He is set aside to be king. But just like David, guess what Jesus does as soon as he is anointed as king? He does not go to a throne and have people serve him a grape juice or a filet and prop his feet up and watch the nightly news. When Jesus receives the anointing of the Spirit as declared king, immediately he goes to war. Just like David went to war with Goliath. Just like as soon as Saul received the Spirit and anointing, he went to war against all the enemies of Israel. Matthew 3, 16 and 17, Christ receives anointing as king. Very next chapter, Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Then, right after that anointing, Jesus was led by the Spirit. The Spirit that just anointed him. Where? Into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So the Spirit of God doesn't just equip Jesus for warfare. The Spirit leads Jesus into warfare. Jesus gets to the battlefield, this wilderness, where he looks the devil right square in the eye. Jesus fights the devil through the sword of the Spirit. The Word of God, he quotes Scripture in the unction of the Holy Spirit, he defeats the enemy. He doesn't succumb to the temptation. And then notice how Matthew characterizes the, the entirety of Jesus' ministry. Very similar to what Peter does in Acts 10, 38. And Jesus went all throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. How do you know if a person has the anointing of the Holy Spirit on their life? It's when they proclaim the gospel. And he healed every disease and every affliction among the people. So Jesus' fame spread all throughout Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by what? Demons. Do you see this common thread? You cannot understand the life of Jesus without understanding the real tangible presence of the demonic. Where Christ was, evil was. Jesus never ran from the evil. He stepped into it with a sword. 
This is the exact summary Peter gives us of Jesus' ministry in Acts 10.38. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. Jesus' ministry is characterized, characterized at least in part as one of spiritual warfare. Read the Gospels, and over and over, in all of the summaries of Jesus' work, he's fighting the devil. He's showing his power over the demonic, casting out demons, healing those who were oppressed by demons. Jesus' ministry is, by definition, the initiation of a clash of two kingdoms. The kingdom of darkness versus the kingdom of Christ. Now, here's why I use this kingdom language. Go back to Matthew 12, verse 28. Jesus has cast out this demon. Notice what he says next, verse 28. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then... In other words, this is the evidence that the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, that phrase, the kingdom of God has come upon you, in the Greek is in the present tense, not in the future tense. That's profound for our theology. Theologians refer to this as the already, not yet, nature of the kingdom of God. Meaning, Jesus brought in the kingdom of God in his ministry. So the kingdom of God is already presently here now. The kingdom is here. But it's not yet fully here. Because as Hebrews says, we don't yet see all things under his feet. Colossians 1 as well, because there's still evil in the world. There's, there's still demonic. There's still death. There's still disease. There's still murder. There's still racism. All of these things are still present. But Jesus says that the sign that the kingdom of God came crashing in, that it had arrived, was evidenced. How? Not by his sermons, primarily. Not that he simply calmed the storms. How do you know that the kingdom had arrived? He said, it's because I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, which gave us a snapshot of the kingdom to come when one day all evil will be gone once and for all. But until that final day when Christ returns, we Christians who bear the image of Christ, who have the same Spirit of God Jesus had, we too are living in a war between two kingdoms. Notice how Jesus is using warfare language. In verse 28, he says, I'm casting out demons. That's fighting language. Sometimes Jesus looks more like Rocky than he does the guy in the shampoo commercial with the long, long flowing gentle hair. Jesus was a warrior king. And then Jesus takes it to another level in verse 29. And Jesus tells us that he has come specifically to make war against another being, the devil. Who, by the way, God towed the devil in Genesis 3. When the enemy in the form of a serpent slithers up, tempts Adam and Eve to sin, God made a promise that through Eve, she would have babies and they would have babies. And eventually, a, a boy would be born who would be a head crusher, who would come to crush the head of the devil. When Jesus comes, he's not simply coming to save sinners. He's coming to get revenge on the devil. His ministry is one of warfare. Notice what Jesus says in verse 29, next verse. 
How could someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Now, in this metaphor, Matthew 12, the strong man is Satan. Satan has a house, Jesus says. Satan's house is the whole world. How do I know that? All throughout the New Testament, we're taught this. 1 John 5, 19, John says, We know that we are from God, Christians, but the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. The Bible teaches the same thing in 2 Corinthians 4, 4. Paul said, Satan is the God, little g, God of this world. Jesus said in John 12, Satan is the ruler of the world. So the scripture says in a real sense, Satan is ruling the world. This is his house. But then Jesus comes along and says in verse 29, he came at the incarnation. God becomes man. Why? To enter into Satan's house. And yet he says before Jesus could take over the world and set up his kingdom and rescue people from the devil, he had to first bind the devil. Verse 29 is what he said. How can someone enter a strong man's house? Jesus is like, I'm, I'm walking up into the devil's house right now. But how can I plunder his goods unless I first bind the strong man, the devil? Then indeed I might plunder his house. Well, let me try to illustrate verse 29 in this way. Many of you know Julius Maddox, who for years was a, a member of this church, one of our deacons. Love that guy to death. He has the most amazing testimony of what Jesus has done in his life. But as many of you know, Julius has recently broken the world record for bench press. He is literally the strongest man in the world. And if you just smack him on the back, you'll feel the power and the strength. Like every time I shake his hand, I just feel like this crushes me. Julius has bench pressed 744.1 pounds, which I go to Planet Fitness. I did the math. If you were to add up all the dumbbells of Planet Fitness, it's not 744.1 pounds, all right? This guy's on a whole nother level. So let's say somebody gets the bright idea. They're going to try to go into Jew's house and try to take his world champion trophy. How's that going to go for him? Two things I would say to that person. First of all, they need their head examined. Secondly, though, you're not just going to walk into Julius's house uh, while he's sitting on the recliner drinking his power protein shakes uh, and just let him watch you take his trophy out of the house. You're not going to rob that fellow without a fight. So if you're going to uh, try to rob Julius, you're going to have to get him tied up in a corner somehow. And the only way you're going to be able to do that is with probably a taser gun and maybe three or four like horse tranquilizers. You get him down, then you try to tie him up. Then and only then, when he is safely secured in the corner, can you rob him. That's exactly what Jesus is doing in verse number 29. Same picture. How could someone enter a strong man's house? The devil can bench more than 744.1. He's strong. And, and, but how can you enter in and plunder his house, his goods, unless he first binds the strong man, 
Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. So Jesus says, listen, the reason I came into Satan's house, the reason I'm here casting out demons, the reason I can save people from their sin is because I am binding Satan. I'm putting Satan on a leash over in the corner. He is still alive. He is still kicking. He is still a threat. But he can't stop me from doing what I want to do in his house. So when God became a man and Christ came into the world, he came into the devil's house and he came to to make war. This is why 1 John 3, 8 says the reason, the reason the Son of God appeared was what? To destroy the works of the devil. We often miss this even in the gospel-centered movement. Why did Christ come to earth? Yes, he came to save us from our sins, but that's not the only reason Jesus came. Jesus didn't just come to be king of your heart. Jesus came to be king of the world. Jesus isn't just taking away our sins. Jesus came to crush the devil's head, as God said he would, all the way back in Genesis 3.15. But the question is how? How is Jesus coming up in the devil's house and binding him? It's not a horse tranquilizer. It's not strong rope. It's not duct tape. How does Jesus bind the devil? He did it at the cross. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 through 15. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Verse 15, at the cross then, Jesus noticed the, the spiritual warfare at the cross. Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities. If you read the rest of the scripture, you know that's the cosmic powers over the present darkness. That's the principalities and powers of darkness. That's the demonic. Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. Open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. Paul gives his audience an image of a triumphal Roman military procession where the Romans would go to war and whip the enemy's tail end. They would take the defeated king of the other nation and all of his surviving warriors, though wounded, and they would parade them through the straits of Rome, mocking them as a spectacle for all to see Rome had won the war and their enemies were pathetic. Jesus doesn't just come to save sinners. Jesus comes at the cross to humiliate and put to open shame the devil. Christ at his crucifixion and at his resurrection, it's as though he takes Satan and all the demons and parades them through the cosmic forces through the streets of the world and Christ announces Satan is defeated at the cross. I own him. He is subject to me. Many of us need to hear this this morning because some of us live as though Satan has not been defeated. We live as though he still has control over our lives. The way some of us speak about spiritual warfare, we almost seem to believe that Satan has more power than Jesus himself. 
But the word of God says Satan has been defeated. Now here's the tension. This is the already not yet tension. You gotta be able to grasp the mystery here or you can't understand the Bible. It's not always black and white. Yes, Satan is still kicking. Yes, in 1 Peter 5, he is still a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Yes, he still hates you. He is still seeking to steal, kill, and destroy. But he is wounded, and he is on a leash. And Satan can't touch any of God's children unless Jesus allows him to. So, there is spiritual warfare going on all around us, but believers, listen, we need not fear because while the battle is raging on, the war has already been won. We need not fear because Christ said the kingdom of God is here, but it's still coming. In one glorious day, the sky is going to split and there will be a rider on a white horse, Revelation 19, whose name is faithful and true and tattooed on his robe and written there on his thigh is the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And when Christ descends from heaven to earth, all the wrongs are going to be made right. And on that day, all of his enemies will be defeated once and for all. And on that day, when he sets up this new kingdom on earth, you won't have to lock your doors at night anymore. You won't need security systems anymore. You won't have to worry about drug addiction anymore. No more cancer. No more leg amputations. On that day, we won't battle temptation anymore. On that day, you won't have to cry anymore. No more depression. No more kids being bullied on, at school. Because on that day, Jesus will sit on his rightful throne. And at the same time, as he rules and reigns the world with justice, at the same time, with his other hand, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And he, in that moment, will be both shepherd and lamb, but the lion of Judah and king of the world. And on that day, we won't have to be alert anymore, watching out for the devil's schemes anymore because the devil will burn in the lake of fire forever. So Pleasant Valley, remember, when you feel like you're losing in this thing called life, when you feel like you're drowning in sin and anxiety and depression and family problems, when you feel like you're down for the count, when you would just as soon be dead, when you watch the news at night and feel like this whole thing is going to hell in a handbasket, remember, you can read the end of the book and we know Jesus wins. Because Jesus is not simply the Lamb of God. He is the Lion of Judah and he is a warrior king whose kingdom shall never end. Let's bow our heads. I want to ask our music team to come forward. Here's what I want us to do. In Ephesians 6, when Paul tells us about the spiritual war we're in, he says, here's how you go to war. You, you put on the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation and the belt of truth and all these things. But he says, you take up the sword of the Spirit. But then he says, here's what you do. You pray. A key weapon in spiritual warfare is praying for the saints, Ephesians 6. We pray for one another. When you pray for another Christian under attack, you are taking up the sword and fighting on their behalf. So that's what I want us to do. I want us not just to be hearers of the word, but doers also. We're going to fight right now. We're going to fight for the next few minutes. So let's bow our heads. If you feel like you're under some kind of attack right now, 
maybe you feel like the enemy is coming after your family, your marriage, your kids, your grandkids, your health, your job, your joy, you're drowning in depression and anxiety. If you just feel like you're under any kind of attack, would you just slip your hand up? Would you just slip your hand up all over the room, I see? And would you just hold that hand up? Don't, don't put it down. Because here's what I want us to do. I want us to fight for one another. We are the body of Christ. Church, you are the saints of God. We are to equip you for the work of ministry. You are all priests. We are to priest and care for one another. So those of you with your hands up, keep them up, please. And if you haven't raised it yet, please have the courage. Raise your hand. This is a safe place. You are loved here. Now, everyone else, open your eyes. And if you see someone in front of you or behind you, beside you with their hands up, I want you at this time to begin to pray over them. Even if you don't know them, I want you to place a hand on their shoulder. Every hand that is, look around the room. No one should go unprayed for. If you've got to walk across the room, do it. I want every person with a hand up, at least two or three hands on them, pray over them. You don't even have to know what's going on. Just maybe take a moment and ask the Lord to lead you how to pray. If they feel led to briefly share with you how you pray, of course, that's fine. They don't have to say a word. Nobody has to speak. This is what it means to be the church. This is not James coming in here and doing all the ministry. You are the church. You are the saints equipped for ministry. Let's fight the enemy. Let's go to war in prayer. And if you're here and you, you still feel like you need prayer, it's not too late to slip your hand up. I'd like to have folks with their eyes open. And listen, maybe someone's not raising their hand, but you just know they need prayer. It may be your spouse, and you know they cried themselves to sleep last night. And you just need to reach over and take them by the hand and pray for them. Maybe you, you feel like God's leading you. There's somebody in the seat in front of you or across the way. And you just know they need prayer. You're not even sure why. Would you just obey the leadership of the Lord and, and step over there and pray for them? Spirit of God, we invite you to lead us. or nudge us. Oh God, help us to pray well. Help us to pray like warriors. Lord Jesus, we proclaim your name is authoritative. Yours is the name above every name. Lord, any opposition in this room, any oppression, Lord, perhaps one is even demon-possessed and is covered up in drug addiction and sexual sin and pornography. Jesus, would you come and set them free by your power? Maybe you're here and you just need to come forward and get on your knees at this altar. That's where I'm going to be and just pray. Pray on behalf of this church. You know, John Calvin said, Satan knows that nothing is more fit to lay waste to the kingdom of Christ than discord and disagreement among the faithful. Satan would love to attack this church through discord and division and disunity. It's one of his primary schemes. Maybe you just want to come pray on behalf of this church that the Lord Jesus would bind the enemy and anyone he would use to sow discord among the brothers for God hates that, the Bible says. Let's not allow the enemy to get any foothold in our heart, whether it's through bitterness, whether it's through hatred, whether it's through unforgiveness. Oh God, would you come and split open our hearts with the great scalpel from heaven and may your Holy Spirit convict us of our own sin. 
Lord, if any of us have contributed to disunity in your church, oh God, may we repent in Jesus' name. Spirit of God, make us uncomfortable for your glory. Move among us powerfully. God, minister to us by your Spirit. We need you. We need you.